once you focus on a niche and you figure out the system, you can take that same system and apply it to other industries. That's Geraldine Carter, a former CFO who was once frustrated with her CPA firm. And little did she know at the time that she'd become a consultant for small CPA firms around the country. Her message is niching down and burying the billable hour by implementing value pricing, which by the way, you do not need to be a CPA firm to gain value from this conversation. Her message is universal for all professional services firms. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. Our discussion with Geraldine Carter is coming up next. You can find Geraldine Carter at shethinksbigcoaching.com. You can also find her podcast on her website, which is Smart Strategy for CPAs. For someone who was once a CFO and now works with CPA firms, I was a bit intrigued with Geraldine's educational background. Well, I was always great at math and science, but I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. So I figured an engineering degree would be a useful thing to have in my pocket. But I was never really, at the end of the day, cut out to be an engineer. It was a little too detail-oriented and a little too much office time, and I wanted more freedom to range. So it was a very useful education. I still apply it, but I'm happy that I'm not an engineer. And there's something else that's intriguing about your background. I do a little research. You're not one to, you're not one to self-promote. You're not one to toot your horn. But I had to do a little digging. You're a marathoner. You're an Ironman competitor, right? Uh, have you been doing that from day one as they go back to your childhood years? Yeah, so this is the risk of putting these details tucked away on your press page. So um, I did run in my 20s. I ran five marathons, and then I wanted to ratchet it up to see if I could actually do the swim in an Ironman because it's two and a half miles. And to quote physic, I only dog paddle. So I took it on as a challenge more for myself than anything else. It's a, I suppose, a thread that's inside me just to see what I can do and what I'm made of. So the Ironman seemed like the next challenge and it was indeed challenging, but it was the most fun day, which may sound warped and tweaked to some of your listeners, but honestly, it was a great time. And now, as I said earlier, you're working with small CPA firms. How did you make that pivot or was it a, a gradual thing? So uh, the sort of athletic pursuits are a, of a different, um, those are all hobbies. On the professional side, there's this thread that weaves through that is, like I said earlier, love math and science, have always enjoyed solving problems and have always sought to use my talents and my passions and combine them in a way that makes the world a better place for other people. That's always been common throughout my life. And the way that that appeared was simply that my business, there was a business that I started in 2008 with a friend. I immediately fell into the finance role because of my math background and but immediately started fighting with my CPA because she would report on April, it would be June, and I would need to know how much money I had for August. And I would say, you know, can you help me forecast these numbers? And she would say, no, basically, that's not what I do. And I would think to myself, well, th that should be what you do because it'd be really valuable for me. I could stop, you know, leaving the office at eight o'clock at night because I've been running modeling and forecasting spreadsheets and things. And um, so we didn't see eye to eye on what I needed and where the value was. Anyways, long and short of it, 
after I exited, I started because so many colleagues had trouble with the money and the math and numbers inside their businesses. I was helping them understand things. And then sooner or later, a CPA caught up with me and asked me if I would help them with their business. And I did a bit of a record scratch because I thought CPAs understood everything about business and they're exposed to it through osmosis all day long. But in fact, what I found was that they're business owners just like everybody else. And there are aspects of business that they too haven't learned yet or well enough to implement in their business. So once I started helping the first CPA, I thought, oh, this is really interesting. Plus these people, we can talk money, math, and numbers together all day long. We get each other. We speak the same language. It's a joy to talk to them. And I think that they feel some amount of reciprocity and that they can talk to somebody about money, math, and numbers who gets them, but who isn't sucked into the vortex of tax and can help them steer their business. So one by one, I started picking up more and more. And then I realized that I really should focus on these folks because I think I have something to offer them that makes a big difference. And we're seeing really great results with CPAs who do all the classic things, specialize in an industry changing from billing to pricing in advance, which makes a humongous difference. And then their marketing starts to stick because they focus on outcomes instead of focusing on selling services. So that's the sort of scenic root answer for how I got from A to B. I'm going to start calling you Donaldson Brown. Donaldson Brown came from DuPont. This is the 1920s. He came from DuPont. He went to work for General Motors because he was asked to by his boss, uh, John Jacob Raskop, the first CFO of the modern era, he had an engineering background, no accounting background. He's the guy who came up with the ROE, the DuPont ROE, return on equity formula. Again, he was not an accountant. He came up with all these systems and processes uh, for the accounting group that grew at General Motors in its heyday. So I'm calling you the Donaldson Brown <laughs> of, of accounting. And then lastly, and I want to, I want to, I want to give you a big high five. Your she thinks big podcast in preparation for this interview. I listened to about five or six episodes. You're nailing it. You and by the way, I've already we talked about this in the green room. Uh, you got this NPR voice. It is outstanding. Your content's great, but you have a great voice. I'm not the only one that said that. Am I? I, people often comment that I have a voice made for podcasting, which makes it all the more enjoyable. And I also hope that the content is a value for folks because it's such a great medium for being able to pick up what you need to grow your business. So it's a it's a really fun combination, as you well know, being a podcaster yourself. Well, I will say about the content, and by the way, thank you, your content, there's some things that you need to consider IPing. I'm using a verb, uh, intellectual property-ing, <laughs> uh, but let me hit a few of those. And by the way, I want to make this clear. This is not just for small CPA firms. Uh, some of the stuff we're going to talk about could apply to small engineering firms, small IT firms, small marketing firms. It just happens to be that your niche happens to be uh, small CPA accounting practices. But again, this could apply universally. Agree? Sure. So anybody who is a, is subject to being a generalist and is afraid of specializing or choosing a vertical, the content equally applies. If the business, if the industry historically bills by the hour, like legal or in creative and sometimes um, ad for ad agencies, they have an hourly structure with timesheets and so on. The concepts still apply. 
for me, I niche into accounting and CPAs because we speak the same language and because marketing wise, it's so much easier when you focus on a narrow niche and a narrow industry and you get to know it really well. You get to know who the key players are. You know who to talk to. You get to hear what rings true. You know the lingo. It makes the marketing so much easier. And I think, you know, for accountants and for other business owners, for other people in other industries who maybe historically avoided marketing or didn't take it seriously, focusing on an industry is just makes your life so much easier. I mean, I could go on. I've done multiple episodes on why choosing a niche is good for your business. But yes, I mean, to answer your question more broadly, once you focus on a niche and you figure out the system, you can take that same system and apply it to other industries. You and I both love the soul of enterprise. It's our, probably our favorite uh, uh, show podcast, right? And we both love Ron Baker. He is phenomenal. Uh, At what point can we stop talking about the billable hour? Are we a long way (laughs) away or is there still more work to be done? Are we getting close? Yeah. So great question. And Ron Baker's podcast is excellent. Um, I had him on my show, I think it's episode 81 or maybe 80. Uh, And for your listeners, because the name of my business is different from the podcast, the podcast is Smart Strategy for CPAs. Do I think that we are a long way away or close? I Honestly, I think we're still quite a ways away. Value pricing in common parlance in sort of accounting conversations basically encompasses anything that is not hourly billing which isn't it, right? That is a vast oversimplification. Cost plus, fixed fee, flat rate, not value pricing. Just because you've determined that your average is X and you're just going to flat rate it at you know X plus 20% does not mean that you're value pricing. But there's a sort of knee-jerk kind of black and white, well, at least I'm not billing by the hour, therefore it must be value. And there's much more when you open up value pricing and all things that are not hourly, you see a lot more inside it. You see menu pricing and then the curves inside menu pricing, which simply put, you know, 1X, 1.5, 1.75, if you want to do might as well pricing. If you want to do Goldilocks, you can do 1, 2.2, 5X for Goldilocks pricing. You can get into segmented pricing where you segment different segments of your client roster. You can do contingency, which I know is kind of uh, makes people squeamish in this profession, but there are ways to do contingency that are above board and legal. I totally get it that there are ways to do contingency that are against the law. I appreciate the distinction. Um, There are many different tools that you can use to price, but where the conversation is right now is, oh, if it's not hourly, it must be value. And I would say nothing could be further from the truth. It's great to get off hourly and move to fix. I mean, that's at least a step in the right direction, but We need to open up the box and have the vast majority of CPAs appreciate that there are more tools like the ones I just mentioned that they can use to apply in their business that are not like, this is not astrophysics that we're asking you to learn here. The basics are really simple. And it doesn't have to be an accounting firm. Is there a firm out there that you can say they're doing it right? They completely get it. So I'm sure that there are firms out there that are doing it right and they completely get it those aren't my people because that's not who I'm trying to help, right? I'm trying to help the ones who see just how much hourly is costing them. And yet they are so busy 
and underwater with yet another season of tax that has gone far too long. They haven't had a break. They're fried. They're totally fatigued. And they know that this is killing them, but they have no sense of how to get off it. It's just too overwhelming. It's too big. It's too nebulous. So the folks that I'm talking to are the ones who are ready to change. They're thirsty to change, but they just need somebody to help them walk across the bridge. Your next area where you've got a great deal of expertise is on niching down. Walk me through some of the aha moments that some of your clients begin to realize. It's like, that makes a lot of sense. First of all, the, I, a lot of people understand the why of niching down, but still let me ask it, why is it important? But when do some of these firms start actually getting it? We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. Yeah, and I would even push back on a lot of people understand why it's important to niche down because I still get a lot of pushback on why niching down is a bad idea. And a really common one is restaurants are having a real problem. See, we shouldn't, this proves that we shouldn't niche down because if you had niched into restaurants, you would be in a terrible state right now, which I would push back against that and say, if you niche and you select your clients, which is an advantage of niching is that you get to be selective about who you work with because you choose the cream of the crop for whom you can get results that sets you up to work with the best clients. And even if you were in restaurants, you would have done excellent work to set your clients up to have enough padding so that they could weather this whole thing. Good point. But if you're running a thousand miles an hour and you've got some restaurants in your on your client roster, of course you're not going to have time to have to have them build up a 15% emergency or rainy day fund. So there, you know, there are a lot of there are misconceptions and sort of red herrings that people use to, in quotes, prove why niching is a bad idea. But what we find is that niching is so helpful because number one, it helps you understand what your best clients need. You focus on your best clients and deeply understand what outcomes and results they're looking for. And then this is where the engineering degree comes um, comes in handy, is reverse engineering. How are you going to get those results for your clients? And thinking outside traditional CPA lanes about how you're going to get those results, right? So not just tax, not just tax planning and tax strategy, but being intentional and having a process for plugging expense leaks for getting your clients to get paid upfront in advance rather than getting paid 60 days after they've delivered the service, thereby improving their cash flow so they're not constantly in a state of fear about whether or not they can cover payroll. You can, when you have a niche, you can get crystal clear about your own custom process to deliver quality, consistent results for your clients. That in turn makes your marketing 
really easy and really clear because you know exactly what you deliver. You know exactly what pain points your clients have. And then you're just looking to recreate the ones like them. It makes the business process so much easier because you're no longer you're no longer trying to systematize a scatter plot painting. You know, you're no longer trying to keep a bunch of frogs in a wheelbarrow. Now you've just got a dozen, two dozen, five dozen clients who all look like each other, who move through a similar, not exactly the same, nobody's exactly the same, but a similar process to get consistent, similar results. So it makes your processes that much easier. You can let go of, you know, the 14 different tech platforms that you have and consolidate it down to only the ones you need for the types of clients that you have. So I could go on like this, but the results, the benefits of niching, focusing on industry will make your business so much easier to run. So you're telling me if my client can walk, talk, breathe, write a check, that's not niching down. Yes. I wrote an email this morning. I have a list that is, I write a daily list for my subscribers. And this morning it was professional services is not a niche. Because it is a stepping stone. I will grant you that it is a useful stepping stone. But professional services are, is not a niche because there's no architect, there's no lawyer that calls themselves a professional service provider. They call themselves a lawyer and architect. So it's not niche enough. And architects have very different problems than lawyers. They may have some overlapping problems, but they are they have different problems. So to think of professional services or people who are passionate about their business, or I work with people who really care and want to grow. It's just not niche enough. You've got to get much more specific. I would also add that when you niche down, you start to become that recognized thought leader. Yes. Let's say in Boise, Idaho, I have an expertise in, let's pick an industry, uh, HVAC, e-commerce, and now they're going omni-channel. They're going to start doing, well, you, they already had the brick and mortar, but now we're going to do that extra channel. Now, all of a sudden, it's like, I don't just have to be uh, a, a firm that has clients in Boise. Now it can be Montana, Washington. Oh, and now I'm being asked to speak at events. And so I think that's another reason. Uh, I mean, that's one of the fringe benefits of, of niching down, right? Yeah. And let's take that one a step further because you mentioned becoming an authority or an expert. And the, the saying goes that riches are in the niches. What happens when you become an authority or an expert is you can step out of delivering a service as the only way to make money. We've grown up in, we grew up in a time where you had to work to make money, but that's no longer true in the same way. Now there are options available to us in the subscription economy. And Ron Baker talks about the subscription economy. You can still subscribe to a service of a CPA firm, but that still keeps you in the service. And what is really exciting is thinking about becoming a thought leader, an expert, and delivering knowledge and stepping away from delivering service. When you're delivering service, your margins go down. But when you deliver knowledge, you can scale it and not have to lift a finger to get paid. So if you can become, if you can niche down and then become an expert on what makes, in your example, an HVAC company super profitable, then you can start to build information products, courses, YouTube courses. You can do, you know, eBooks, PDFs that people pay for and all the rest. 
have them in some kind of paid membership community where they're paying, let's just pretend, $99 a month. And they're in there gobbling up the content. It's super valuable for them. It's helping their HVAC business grow. And every time you add a piece of content, a five-minute video or whatever, it adds more value. But you add that video one time and you continue to get paid for it for a lifetime. So if you just run simple numbers, 99 bucks a month, say you've got 10 people, you're looking at $1,000 a month of recurring revenue. You have 100 people, now you're looking at $10,000 a month of monthly recurring revenue that you do effectively no work for. You do the work one time and that's it. So now you're talking about a subscription that allows you to wake up every May 1st and go, oh, look, and every June, July 1st and go, oh, wow, okay, great. $10,000 in my account this month and I have, haven't even started. So niching allows you to take your business and lift it up to a whole new level that gets you out of trading your time for money. But you can't do that when you're a generalist working for a nonprofit and a school over here and an HVAC over there and a construction guy over here. And we've got a manufacturing business and a pharmaceutical company across town. It's never going to work. And this is more than just the subscription economy. It's the value economy because the firm isn't just winning, but the client is valuing and winning. Oh, by the way, their customers, uh, the, the customers of the client, your service, they're winning. Employees, presumably. So it's such a value-based economy of what you're describing. I love that you bring this up because there's misconception about trading money in the accounting profession because they think in terms of debits and credits, yes. it's you give me money, I win, you lose. Whereas in the value economy, it's you give me money and we both make a bunch more money. We both shake hands and we say, thank you. Let's do this again. That's creating value for both parties. And that's the deal that we're looking for. We're not looking for this transactional, like, oh, crap, it cost me three grand to get my, fi my taxes filed. Oh, well, there goes three grand. It's a necessary expense. We need to think beyond in terms of how can I help my client. If they give me a dollar, I can generate for them $2 so that they keep wanting to give me dollars all day long. It's a different approach to the problem. But there's historically, in the way the industry is set up, it's been very much this sort of debits and credits thinking. So I love that you're bringing the value, kind of mixing it in this way and helping people see that it's much more about creation of new dollars than it is about I win, you lose. It feels about 20 years ago, I don't think it was quite that long, but I once attended the Gary Boomer Technology Circles in and around the Kansas City, Missouri area, I think in Overland Park. And they had one module on strategic planning for small CPA firms. And that was my first exposure of planning of any nature for a small firm. Is that a space that you also... Uh, working and helping? And if so, what does that cadence look like for firms? Is it an annual cadence? Is it quarterly? Is it semi-annually? Walk me through that. Sure. So first of all, this term strategic planning needs to go. I hate, yeah. And I, I said it, but well, that's on his booklet. I still have it. And I, I hate that term. I, I, I'm a big fan of worldly mapping and uh, I like strategy. I like planning, but not yet. When someone asks me what is strategic planning, oh, it's a $2 billion industry. That's what it is. So we're on the same page. Yeah. 
So let's get strategic and be thoughtful about how we're going to get your business to the next level, the next band of success, if you will. And because in the industry right now, it's been so it's because there's so much of a gravitational force in the direction of generalism. It's quite simple to be strategic. The bar is quite low. So being strategic is one piece of the pie for me. And then planning is comes after the strategy. When I'm working with a client in terms of being strategic, like I said, the bar is pretty low. The first thing that we do is help them understand what who are going to be the best clients for you. And usually those clients are inside their client roster already. We run an income by customer summary report. We sort it in descending order by revenue. And then we sort of, we interrogate, we check out who those clients are. Which ones do you most enjoy working with? What do you like about them? Which of these do you think you could add the most value to? And from there, we hone in on the industry that they're going to focus on. Strategy does not have to be this whole complicated thing. We then include services that we're going to build out for them. And then we price those services based on what we think the value is that they can potentially provide. And we do some menu pricing, we do some testing. So, you know, a lot of people think that strategy has to be super clever (laughs) and it doesn't, not at this level. It can be very, very simple. So once we've got a few of those pieces in place, namely an industry to focus on, services to offer those folks and pricing, then we can set it, then we can set about planning. Okay, how are we going to get there? And this is the part where, as I was saying earlier, when you choose an industry and you understand their problems, it becomes very easy to have a process for them. So the process that we move them through, or I move them through, is to study their niche, do some market research. And I have a few simple hacks. We don't invest 20 grand and 18 weeks in market research. We do 10 days of market research. And then we come back, what did you find? And then we unpack the content. We organize the content that they're going to take to the marketplace. And we also identify guinea pigs inside of their client roster that we're going to approach and have conversations with about, you know, I'm developing these new services based on these outcomes that you've mentioned that you think would be valuable to you. Would you like to have a conversation? And that is the sort of launch pad, if you will, for the, for the coming year. But we take it quarter by quarter and we revisit every quarter. Okay. What's working? What's not? Because, because there are not because this isn't the norm in the industry, there aren't a ton of examples to go off here, right? So we're custom building this for each CPA and we've got to make it right for them. We're designing a business for them that they're going to enjoy that is the overlap of their talents and their passions with what the marketplace is looking for. So we're always, we're course correcting to make sure as we go, that the ship is headed in the direction that they want to go in. So in bringing it back to strategic planning, I think a lot of people go, what's that? I don't have time for that. That sounds too complicated. That sounds like a two-day workshop. I'm not, no, forget it. Let me just keep doing what I'm doing. Whereas it can be, it is simple, it is straightforward, and it is step-by-step. And when you implement one, it makes your business growth become so much easier. I bet that fear 
is the biggest resistance because some of these firms are already making maybe not great money, but anywhere from okay money to good money. And so maybe a little bit scary, hey, what we're doing is already working. Now they may be bored to tears, but would you say that just getting a little bit uncomfortable is one of your biggest obstacles? I think fear is quite cunning and it will look like a lot of, uh, it will look like quite rational reasons for why we should not change. Especially for people who are smart and intellectual and want to make sure that they look like they always have all the answers. So fear will present itself as clever things like, I'm too busy is always an excellent one. I can't think about it right now. What we're doing works, like you say. Loss aversion, which is the sort of kissing cousin of, you know, this is working, but is really a trap. Because if you sit in the Facebook groups and the Slack channels of accountants and CPAs right now, they are griping about how awful this is. They are, not all of them, but the ones in there are miserable about some of their clients who make ridiculous requests, in fairness, who, you know, they're overworked, they're underappreciated, and they're underpaid. And yet, like you're saying, they do not, there is massive resistance to change. Because what if it doesn't work? And nobody want to wait, nobody wants to waste their time on something that doesn't work. So the solution to this is to mitigate the risk, right? To understand what is the risk to, in this case, my client, the CPA, what is it that they're really concerned about? And then understand the impact and understand what the risk factors are and take those one by one. Understand if we do nothing, what's going to, where are you going to be in 12 months? And it's opposite. What's the worst thing that's going to happen? What's really the worst thing that's going to happen? Is your entire business going to sink? I don't think so right? Especially because the moment you hang up the phone, it rings another 20 times with other people wanting your business because they realize they need a CPA to help them with PPP and ERC. So your business is not going to tank. There's tons of demand out there. But we need to mitigate the risk by taking this piece by piece, small steps. And then I always work with my clients one-on-one to say, you know, we're taking a risk here to go out and after this client, is this a client that you're okay potentially losing? And if they say, no, I'm not interested in losing this client, then we don't test them. We don't use them as a guinea pig. We find a different one. So you've really got to work with your clients to understand what they, where they perceive the risk to be, unpack it, understand what the impacts are, and then how can you mitigate for the biggest of the impacts? I think your zone of genius is outstanding. I can't remember which episode I heard this on, but the zone of uh, genius, right? That That's your, mm-hmm. I love it. And by the way, you don't just need to be a partner in a CPA firm. Uh, this is for the, the, the new graduate, right? It can be for the CFO who works in private industry. So I love that mental model or that framework you've created. Just briefly walk us through it. Sure. Yeah. And, it's not, I don't want to take credit for it. It's, I think it's from, who is it from? We'll have to find out and put it in the show notes. It's either from the big leap by Gay Hendricks or somebody else, but we'll find out. But the idea of working inside your zone of genius is that you get to leverage your talents and our talents can be invisible to us because it seems so obvious when we're good at things, 
And so many CPAs think that the stuff they do is so easy. And I can tell you that it is not easy, right? I speak three languages fluently and I cannot understand tax. When people start talking to me about the period after the period in which the deduction was taken, you've lost me. So the folks that I work with are super smart and they can build out spreadsheets that will save their clients hundreds of thousands of dollars. And they'll build out the spreadsheet with seven tabs that all have these interlocking formulas and their client will give them a couple numbers. They'll plug these numbers into the right yellow boxes where they're supposed to and they'll click enter and they'll spit out, great, you know, $75,000 over here. And they'll call that easy. And they'll think to themselves, you know, why, you know, I, I can't, I feel guilty charging my client $5,000 for that when it only took me six seconds. But you've got to remember that it took you 12 years just to understand math. It took you another four years to get a bachelor's so right. that you could get a master's in accounting. And so that you could, you know, study for the CPA so that you could sit for five years and learn all tax and then have this be your zone of genius where it comes so easily to you. And I watch my clients. It's not that they don't, it's that they don't appreciate how valuable their zone of genius is. So it takes another person to pull it out of them and say, here's what it is. And here's how we can leverage this in the marketplace to make your business run so much easier. And you're not doing all this stuff that just kicks up dust and burns off a bunch of heat and wastes your time and drags your spirit down. So that's the importance of having somebody help you identify your zone of genius so that you can sit squarely inside it and leverage it. Can we add to, can we add to the zone of genius? You may be really good at something. You may be extremely competent, but it could be something that just does not energize you. It could be not fun. It could be boring. I would add that to it, right? Yeah. So you can get to what's called the next level of success, a success plateau, as Alan Weiss would put it, where you've challenged yourself enough to get to a place where you go, okay, that was really hard. Now I need to take a breath. And then you sort of rest on your laurels, or maybe you get bored because it's not challenging you anymore. So now you're at this plateau and you've got to watch out for it because it can be a trap. What you need to do when you're at the success plateau is recognize it and say, okay, now I need to challenge myself again to get up to the next level so that you're constantly developing. Otherwise, you're just going to become old news and your sort of your expertise and your authority in the marketplace will diminish, your light will fade, and then people will be on to the next expert. If we can go on to a different line of questions, uh, this is called Mark's rant session, if it's okay. Uh, I picked a few uh, bullet points where I thought, well, I want to run these by Geraldine because these might be beneficial even to you and your client base. And a lot of us, whether we work in a CPA firm or not, if we don't work in a CPA firm, we are usually the intermediary or the person talking to the firm on a it may not be daily, but it could be weekly. It could be as, as, the, as the situation arises. But one thing I've noticed with a lot of clients that I will work with is they don't practice what I call the proactive three to four meetings per year. I would think, Geraldine, at a minimum, that every firm, this would be a norm. Now, I do this. If they don't do it, I will say, okay, Sarah, we're going to meet on June the 15th. We're going to meet on September the 15th. 
we're going to meet on December 1st for a quick pre-mortem, which by the way, we assume in that pre-mortem, everything is going to go wrong. So we figure out what will make things right because we want our numbers into you by the third week of January. And then we'll have a quick after action review after the 15th. Now in this case, it'd be after May 15th. They may say, no, we're not going to do that until maybe June 1st. That's okay. But I think those multiple meetings, oh, by the way, you need to be available. Uh, we'll let you know anytime we're making, uh, you know, whatever big purchase or big questions. That to me seems normal, but I do not see that very often in my small sample size. Now push back, but that's one of my rants with, with small yeah. firms. So I appreciate the rant and I would take it even one step further and say that with my clients, we come at it from the opposite direction. We come at it from what outcomes are you trying to create for your clients? So just to give you an example, I onboarded a client recently. And when I onboard clients, it's a four to five hour meeting so that we can make a ton of progress quickly. I don't do this 50 meeting BS, excuse me, where you can't make any progress the first time you, you know, in your first meeting, you don't get anywhere in 50 minutes. Not if you're trying to make a difference in your client's business. And our clients deserve the best possible results as fast as we can give them to them. No waiting 18 months. No, I get my clients to turn their ship in their business in four to six months, but we hit it hard. So we do a four hour onboarding meeting. And in that meeting, one of the things that I ask them is if you could have your way with one of your best clients, what would you do? And they say, oh, I would, you know, tax planning, tax strategy. I would plug the expense leaks. We would do retirement planning. And they list out the same six or eight things. And then I say, if you could do those things, what are we talking about? How much could you save them? And then they list out all the numbers and I capture the whole thing in a spreadsheet and I turn my screen around, if you will, show it to them and say, does this look accurate? And time and again, my clients tell me these are their numbers. I'm not trying to invent anything here. It's got to be believable to them because the numbers need to be powerful for them that conservatively they can improve the wealth of their clients through all the different strategies by 10% easily, no problem. They're like, oh yeah, no problem, no problem. 15% probably, yep, I bet you we can. 20 to 25% if a number of things work in our favor. This client that I was doing this with recently, she is in the niche of practice physicians in the three to $4 million range. So the numbers that I showed her were 300,000 on up to 750,000 numbers that she gave me. And I said, you know, what's going on that you're you're telling me you could save your clients three quarters of a million dollars if you just had the time. How would you do it? And then she says, well, we would have, so we need to have a few meetings right before the tax deadline. And then we need to, right after the tax deadline, have a bunch more. But then because they're physicians, they want to go on vacation for the summer. So then in the fall before tax deadlines, we need to have a few meetings to address X, Y, and Z, and then a few more at the end of the year to make sure that everything's all lined up. So we dispense with this idea of, not that it's not useful, but I don't think it should be the way that it's designed to just go monthly or semi-monthly. Instead, we say, if you want to get your clients $750,000 back, how do you need to meet with them in order to make it happen? I want your butt in the driver's seat. Stop it being this co-pilot who's kind of like, eh, you could take a right up here, but maybe you could take a left, but I don't want to commit. You're really, it's your business. You drive the show. No, you're the expert. I get wound up about this. You can tell. <laughs> you're the expert. You're the, ex you're the one with the expertise. They are coming to you for guidance. 
So get in the driver's seat and determine when you need to have meetings, what you're going to talk about in each meeting, what they need to do after each meeting. You both mutually agree on the action items so that in the next meeting, you check in with them and did you say, and you say to them, did you do one, two, three, and four? Yes, no, maybe, whatever. And you make yourself available to them because invariably after they leave your meeting, they're going to go make a phone call to their CFP and the CFP is going to ask them questions they don't have answers to. So they're going to need to call you back, right? So, I mean, reason number 802 to get off of hourly billing. So you need to drive the bus and set up the cadence of the meetings or the timing of the meetings in order to get the outcomes that your client is looking for. When you build your business around the outcomes that your client is looking for, it will change the very nature of how you operate your business. And by the way, if you got a thousand clients, you don't have to do that with all thousand. Just pick your A clients. Now you may say we'll get rid of your D's and C, but I'm just pick your top what and at least start with them first as a I think as a starting point. I oh go ahead. Yes, yeah, let me just let me just add to that. Um, so pick your top first disengage the bottom 15% of your clients right away. I knew you would say I opened myself up on that one. <laughs> and then we'll work on getting that like in tranches, getting disengaging the other ones as we go. But you're not going to do this with 20 out of the gates. You're going to do it with three or four so that you get the feel of it. As we wrap up, I have a, just a couple more questions if that's okay. We've had John Garrett on the show and that guy is a cool guy. He's a former, well, actually he's a former a uh, big eight or big five accountant. That's how you know how old you are. Is it, was it the big eight? Was it the big five? <laughs> yeah. So uh, I was part of the big eight. He was part of the big five. He started there as a tax consultant in St. Louis, a comedian as well. He's, he's done writing. Uh, he's done stand up work. And he has a, a show and a book called what's your and. And when I, that, that, that term and that question is on my brain. It's, it's just, it's always on my brain. And I just had to ask you about your and. Now, we've already been through your and. It's running, uh, competing. Is that, st- if you were to be on his show, and I, I, by the way, I'm going to, I'm going to, I think I'm going to try to book you on that show without you knowing it. That would be all, he, that would be a great interview. Uh, is your and still, is it still, do you still run a lot? Is that biking as well? Yeah, as much as I can. It's my outlet. I mean, I've got two littles, right? And it's COVID and parenting and homeschooling and all the rest. In fact, just yesterday, I was trail running, listening to your podcast. So it is running and mountain biking and skiing and getting outside and just being active and, you know, getting after it as much as a 40-year-old mom of two can is very much still a part of what I do. One of the reasons I want to bring this up is back in my 30s, that was a, a few years ago, I was doing a lot of 5Ks and I was so into it. It was all about the PRs, the PRs, the PR. And I got down to 1801 <gasps> and, and I'd already had three knee surgeries. And oh I gosh. thought I'm going to get down to 17. I want to do a 17 minute mile. Now I'd be 17, but I figured it out. I figured out the system. I figured out the training, but I was doing something stupid, Geraldine. I was still running 40, uh, 40 miles a week. So oh, I, had, I had jump yeah. miles so the, one of the reasons yeah. I, I was curious, have you been able to, to remain injury-free? Yeah, actually. I feel quite lucky in that I've been able, I must have some genetic sponginess because I've, I've packed a lot of miles and um, 
did a sub six mile not that long ago. Yeah, I know. If you guys could see Mark's face, <laughs> his chin just went underneath his desk. <laughs> I did do in one of my races a 545 mile, but you know how you do a race. You'll, you'll start out too fast. And yes. I, I was pacing myself with the wrong people. And I was, I was dead the last two miles. Yeah. So that's the only time I think I've ever clocked myself under. That, I just, that's amazing. It's incredible. It's it's the kind of speed that makes you feel sick at the end. So it's not something I seek doing regularly. Um, but I am grateful that I've been able to kind of, I'm something of a hard charger, if we're going to be real, and that I've been able to stay injury free. I feel really grateful for because it is, you know, for those of us who seek exercise as our as our respite and as our place to go kind of get calm again. I'm really grateful that I can do it every day still and be healthy. Well, as your senior, just do a little, keep cross training. I, I think that has something to do with it as well, right? Absolutely. The The other question, again, this is a the, the nosy curiosity question. Because you podcast, you I know you read. Who are some of your favorite influencers? I've been dying to hear the answer to this question. Sure. So lately... I've been steeped in anything I can get my hands on by Jonathan Stark. He's he I love the way that he thinks. I love the way that he puts things. He has, you know, coding background, so it's like clear, it's succinct. And anything I can get my hands on by him, ditching hourly, his podcast is great, business of authority like that. Um, and certainly Alan Weiss has, I think I've read like eight books by Alan Weiss in the last year, is also excellent. We mentioned Ron Baker. I've really enjoyed Mark Wickersham. Um, and anybody right now who's talking about not just pricing, but subscription pricing in the accounting profession right now has my ear. Jonathan Stark, I love his demeanor. I thought, now that's the way I like to hear people. T- I mean, he, he, that's just him. Do, do you, no, no, you know what I'm talking about? I, well, I know absolutely what you're talking about. And you kind of sound like him. You have this nice, he, he slow, a, clear cadence. He has a better boy. I could listen to Jonathan all day. I, I heard him for the first time uh, with Ron and Ed uh, interviewed him. Yeah. And I'm going to say the year 2021, it was outstanding. And then they did yeah. a uh, their bonus episode. Again, he's like, no, Jonathan, don't go away. Keep talking, keep talking. <laughs> uh, I want to I throw another name out there to you. Now, their content is not 100% uh, pricing, but the names that you mentioned, you would love the two Bobs. Uh, it's two Bobs. I love the dot- two Bobs. Oh, you do? So would you put of them in Of course I do. Okay, excellent. Uh, I think they're both great. David C. Baker, he is phenomenal. And then Blair Ends, again, they are just, I love those two guys. Yeah, they are both great. And they're also thought leaders pushing in, especially for the creative industries. Yes. I've sent a number of folks I know in the direction of the Two Bobs podcast. Plus, I appreciate their sense of humor. Now, I do my homework. And this one was hard trying to figure out some of your favorite books. I know in one of your shows, uh, you mentioned some marketing books. But again, this is CFO Bookshelf. So I have to ask, uh, what are some of your favorite books? And they don't have to be uh, business books either. So because I think that your business is a manifestation of your thoughts and your perspectives, I find it really interesting to read on the emotional emotional intelligence side of things. So I love Daniel Goleman. 
and emotional intelligence, um, reading Learned Optimism, Martin Seligman, uh, Stephen Covey, Seven Habits. I think seek first to understand and be proactive. Those two rules, if you implement those in your business and your life, make a huge difference. So those are some examples of some of my favorite thought leaders. And those books are classics. So you may as well go right to the source. You probably like up the original thinking. You probably like Angela Duckworth as well. Would she be in that list? I do. Yes. Yeah. And a brave soul. So uh, again, where can we find you? This will be in the show notes, but where can we find you? Sure. So my website to learn more about coaching is shethinksbigcoaching.com. And for folks that are looking for the podcast, it's Smart Strategy for CPAs, which you can, of course, find at smartstrategyforcpas.com. Excellent. And again, thank you very much for being on the show. Mark, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf. Lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. Geraldine Carter, thank you very much. Check out the podcast catalog on CFO Bookshelf and we'll have show notes and links to Geraldine's website and podcast. I'm a huge Christina Wadke fan for any CEO thinking about OKRs. I have two books in mind, but I always recommend Radical Focus as the starting point. Christina is a recognized subject matter expert on OKRs, and I'm calling her one of the early pioneers of teaching OKRs to other businesses. Christina has just released the second edition of Radical Focus, and she'll be our guest next week to talk about that book. Again, many thanks to Geraldine Carter. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. Until next time.